What you're about to hear is an episode from my other podcast, The Wigs. That show is on a short break, and as a result, we have been conducting interviews with the Wigs themselves, so please enjoy. On this episode, we are continuing with our one-on-one interviews with the Wigs themselves. I want to thank Stephen Lawrence for his time last month. It was a great discussion. We heard a lot of feedback from listeners that they loved the brief foray into the personal from the legal. We have another great one coming up, which is the fantastic Felicity Graham, and then we will go back into our regular Wigs programming. But for now, here is the one and only Emmanuel Kirkasharian. Emmanuel Kokosharian, this is your life, sir. Tim, I'm, I'm so excited by this. Why is that? <laughs> I just like you know, I'm, I'm it's, different uh, dynamic. Different dynamic. Being you know, I, I haven't listened to what the other wigs have done, so That's you good. know, I, I don't know what you're going to ask. I don't know the nature of your deposition. Whether you're going <laughs> to ask the hard hitting questions, what's coming? It's you couldn't get any more softball. Oh, it's well. <laughs> I mean, you're the Australia's answer to Joe Rogan. That's the. <laughs> That's, that's, what, that's what no one said to me before. And no, no illusions, that's not the case. Um, so, um, look, thank you for your time. As with all the wigs, your time is outside the recording of the show is precious, so we were cutting into it. I appreciate that. Um, with the other wigs, we've used this as an opportunity to let the audience know um, who we are, who yep. you guys are, what prompted your journey into uh, the profession, yep. and how it led to... Um, where it is today yeah I've all and, and you know it's per, it, it's kind of interesting I, I I don't know much about your history pre-law yeah let's get into some of it today if you don't mind yeah so I was a precocious kid right I was like six years old people would, teachers would say things to me and I'd say not necessarily okay you know um, and I was determined I was one of those crazy people who's determined to be a lawyer at, as far back as I can remember so you knew I knew. I was always going to be a lawyer. Yep. Didn't know what kind of law, didn't know whatever, but I knew I wanted to argue for a living. Yep. Um, and I was... But, uh, you, yeah. law, but uh, the law at six? Yeah. Well, but did, did you have someone who you, who influenced you? Did so, you how did, so did you know? My dad, I probably is the person who influenced me the most. Okay. He was in London in his sort of late teens, early 20s. Okay. And he wanted to be a barrister. Okay. But he couldn't do it because you had to dine at the at the inns of court and that cost money. And uh-huh. if you're a young um, refugee who's come, or a child of refugees who's come to London with no money, you can't afford to be a barrister. Yep. So he, I think, was influencing me, but I was just a super nerd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I was reading, I think I read Herodotus at age six or seven. Really? Yeah. You know, by the time I was 12, I would have read half the classics, you know. Really? Years. Yeah. I was a hyper nerd. Good for you. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was so nerdy. Um, and I just, I've always been, you know, kids are always like, why, 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 you know, that kind of inquisitive asking questions. But I've been like that all the time. I always took things back to first principles, even as a kid, and so just loved it. Child prodigy, would you say? Look... I wouldn't say that. I would say... Would others say that? People people suggested that I might have been when I was young. Yep. Um, I think wrongly. I think it was more just I was a very nerdy kind of guy who really enjoyed reading and so appeared to be quite smart as a result because yeah. I, was, I was reading by about three years old. I wow. was, um, And I loved it. And I... I, I my dad had a speed reading course that he did yeah. when he was six. Oh, sorry, when I was six. Yeah. And I picked up the materials and I taught myself how to speed read. Yeah. So I was speed reading at six. Mm. And proper, but not, not like reading fast, like the actual comprehending. Mm. So, yeah. So when you can speed read and you have that skill, you use it. I use it. Mm. And I, I use it today. I can read really fast. But even then, I would just read, read, read mm. anything I got my hands on. But you're like a kid with a new toy. You have yeah. this skill as a toy, yeah. and you're utilising it. Yeah. You're like, I know how to do it, so I might as well smash these books. Yeah, and I would get lost in books. You know, I read, 
I read The Lord of the Rings in one night. Oh, my god! I started in the afternoon at about two or three, mm. and I didn't stop reading until the sun came up the next day when oh, I finished wow. the next page. I, was just, I would lose myself in these things. That's incredible. Um, and, yeah, so that was... And I, consequently, I didn't really study much. I, my didn't study, I didn't need to because I, you know, I'd read it. I'd read a maths textbook before I looked at the maths. Did it translate into uh, jumping ahead here a little bit? After, yeah. But did it translate into sort of results in your high schooling years? Yeah, I mean, high school again. I didn't really study. I did well. I was accelerated in a few subjects and so on. I was, you know, um, effortless so, for you. Effortless. And then I got to university and I was bored out of my mind. Oh really? You know, I've read this. I've seen that movie that they made about you. What's that? Goodwill Hunting. No, 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 I'm not that smart. I'm smart enough. In fact, it's, it's horrible because I'm smart enough to know that I'm nowhere near that smart. <laughs> it's so depressing. It's like, there's no fantasy there. It's like, oh, shit. But that's know? so... I've never, like... You know, it's, 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 that's so interesting to hear that because mm. studying and reading is such a daunting task for mm. me, being unable to retain anything... <laughs> as soon yeah. as the words pass my eyes. <laughs> yeah. But for you, it's uh, there, there's something in the brain that goes, store that, yeah, yeah keep I, it. I mean, I actually credit the speed reading course. So I don't oh, know. Okay. Most people who read either speak out loud in their heads, mm-hmm. so speak to themselves in yeah. their head as they're yeah. reading, and I have never done that. What is I've, it? What has what does it have I to just work? read. You, I, I look at the words and I absorb their meaning. So um, there's no kind of passing the sentences or anything like that. But then if you ask me afterwards, I can tell you exactly what has been said. So you, you automatically see the meaning with the words. You don't say the word and then have to think of the... Yeah. It's all, it's all built in. That must make... No wonder it's just the speed. Well, that, that, that was the speed reading course I took. It's mm. like, do not read it in your head to yeah. yourself. Just, like, initially you move your finger along the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And absorb the material. Yeah. And that's how I taught myself to read. Um, you're, let's go back a bit. Yeah. So you come from a very well-known family. Yep. You were mentioning your father uh, was in London in his early, early days, mm. but a refugee. Yeah, so his father and mother were victims of the genocide, the Armenian genocide. Um, my grandfather's story, which has been published, is is horrendous. He was... Marched out into the desert at about seven years old with his parents, um, you know, had to lay with dead... After they passed away, had to lay with dead bodies to escape. Gosh, yeah. You know, as a, as a tiny kid. Yeah. Um, and anyway, he winds up in Cyprus as a refugee after a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad grows up effectively in a one-room shack where they have to put socks in the walls to stop the snakes coming in. Wow. You know, mm-hmm. Um and goes from there uh, to London and then ultimately here and, you know, winds up running a couple of government departments as a permanent secretary. We're going to get to that. We're going to yeah. get to that. Um, but the the, uh, the Armenian heritage, you know, if yeah. I know you yeah. and I know how important that is to you yeah. and you probably can't personify that in words, but uh, as an Armenian... How important does it define you and what you do? It's kind. Of, it's interesting, right? Because I would actually say that my defining values, particularly professionally, but generally, are those are the old English common law values. They're mm. the things that I believe in and that drive me the most. I know it sounds a bit passe to say, but it's the truth of it. Uh, but. As I've got... and I mean, I, I learned Armenian as a child. I grew up bilingual. Um, the gen- spectre of the genocide was always there as a historical fact. Do you remember hearing about it for the first time? I don't remember hearing about it for the first just, time. Just... I, I remember my grandfather having nightmares. Wow. You know, um, screaming at night because um, they lived with us. I, I remember it being a big part of my growing up. We always commemorated the genocide. But as I've got older, I've noticed in effect, the effect of the genocide in me. There's a tr- they talk about, the, the psychs talk about genocide trauma. And it's a real thing. It's a real, I am to this day prepared for my door to be knocked down and I've got a little grab bag ready to go mm. because somebody might come to upend my life. Mm. 
because that's what's happened in my immediate historical past and that of my family. Mm. And so it's hard to be positive when you've got that in the back of your mind. And mm. I, I think as I get older, I'm more aware that it's in the back of my mind and I'm able to kind of deal with it. But genocide's mm. horrendous. The fact that the Turkish government still doesn't admit it is horrendous. But, you know, my grandfather was an amazing man in the sense that he sheeted the blame back home to the government and not the people. You know, wow. That was his view. He didn't have a bone of hatred in his heart towards the people, some of whom had done horrible things to him um, because he's, he understood that it's not people who do those. I mean, it's people who do them in practice, but mm. it's governments that lead them. And mm. I think that's part of the reason I have sort of such an anti-tyrannical bend in my practice and in my life. But also my dad went into community relations, I think, because he didn't want those sorts of things to happen. He didn't want communities to be fighting each other because that's where it can lead. Yeah. You know? um, so it's a, it's a big part of the existence, you know. And I, as I'm talking about, I get emotional. Yes, I, and I, I knew that and I didn't want to... Um Pry, but I, nice. I had to ask. Yeah, of course. I've never actually, I've, I've heard of the, the, the genocide, I'm aware of it, and I've never actually spoken to anyone about it. Yeah. Because, uh, just because I, you know, uh, but I, because it's so traumatic and so emotional, but I did want to, want to, to see how much of an influence it had on your sense of justice and whether or not it was the driving force in leading to your profession. Um, I would dare say it, it was, yeah. but, you're, but, but, but it's, it's a peripheral yet guiding force. Well, I think looking back, it really is, you know, I, I've got a finance degree. I've got an economics degree. I could well have been a banker or I could well have been a corporate lawyer. Mm. And if I think about the reasons why I chose to fight, in effect, mainly for defendants, I mean, I prosecute as well, mm-hmm. but... I think it's because I really am of the view that governments need guidance and it, that they get from external pressures like defence lawyers mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to help save us from that. So I think, I think if you'd asked me growing up whether it was a driving force, I would have said no, but I think it was, yeah. looking back. You know. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many questions I want to ask you, but I, I think we should do it in chronological order. Okay. <laughs> we should okay. keep going. Um, from your early childhood... Um, and you know, having the gift of comprehension that's just so must have just been so um, uh, I, I don't know, just just enlightening for you. Um, around about this stage in the in the sort of eighties, yeah. Your father, hang on, were you born in New South Wales? Born in New South Wales, and you were born in New South Wales. So your father had already come out to yes, long been long. Long established in the New South Wales community, yeah. he in the in the in the early eighties, if I'm not mistaken, um, becomes a member of the public service at a very high level. He was the head of SBS Radio, ah, okay, so Commonwealth, um, and he was instrumental in the starting up of SBS back when uh, Gough Whitlam started up SBS. He was involved in that and sort of went on to become the head of radio for yeah. SBS. Um, he started off doing the Armenian language program on SBS. Yeah, right. Uh, but then, I think around about so he worked there. He was quite senior in the in the Commonwealth Public Service. And then, I think I can't remember when. It would have been early nineties. My mother passed away when I in eighty eight. I didn't know. So that. my dad became a single dad. I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't realise, yeah, Matty. Yeah. So, the problem with being head of SBS radio is you're interstate all the time. You can't, you're not, you know, you're on a plane every other day. So he switched to the state government. Yeah. Um, where he became the chairman of the of the then Ethnic Affairs Commission, now Community Relations Commission. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would go on school holidays to his office. Yeah. And because there was nowhere else for me to go, you know, sure. he was a single dad, and I got to watch him operate. Is it his, just you and him? No, I've got an elder brother and an elder sister who are both fabulous people, yep. much older than me, and my dad was a single dad but had their help, yeah. which was so, so great for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, school holidays I'd go in and watch him operate, Yeah. And what an amazing lesson that was, you know, just 
kind of learning from osmosis. If I got ten percent of his skill out of that, I was very lucky. You know, that's so, incredible. Yeah. When your mother passed, I mean, you must have been eight or nine, or eight. gee whiz, man, yeah. that must have been really hard for you. Well, it's it's so interesting. I I probably didn't clock it until my early twenties. Yeah. You know, I yeah. was too young for it to really hit me. Yeah. Um, and then I think I was just minded to finish university, which I did. Yep. And I finished uni, and I was like, "Oh shit, my mum's dead." Yeah. And I broke down and yep. and grieved and yeah, you know, went through all of that. Um, yeah. So that was was. Uh, I mean, it's horrible. What else can you say? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um. Did, do you know anything about your mother's history that you feel may have influenced some of the decisions that you've made in your professional life? I think only this. My mother was um, was a very fun person, very mischievous person. Okay. Um, you know, lots of friends, lots of that, that you know, very lively yep. and so on. Yeah. And one of the things that, um, who says it, Jeffrey Robertson mm. says, is that, I think it's Jeffrey Robinson, is that the, one of the key qualities of a barrister is ability to control their instinctive sense of mischief. Okay. And I think I get my sense of mischief from my mother. I love that. That is fantastic. Well, um, I feel like I know her through you, then, definitely. Because that's, yeah. yeah, that's one one trait I definitely recognise <laughs> you from day one when we yeah. first met. Um, so... Um, you had a lot of opportunity through your unique brain. Yep. Um, did you? Were you? You've said that you was always going to be law. Yep. But that the circumstances of your abilities led you on many different paths. Yep. Was there ever any element of what if, or were you just going through the motions to? attain these degrees and this academic pursuit because you could but the means to the ends was always um, the law yeah it was a ticket I mean it was always a ticket the finance degree was there because I thought I might be interested in corporate work and funnily enough as I get older and I've done a lot of crimes like that part of my brain is rekindling I'm doing a bit of corporate work mm. uh, but there was so university was I, I was disengaged. It was enough to get my marks and get through, and I was doing reasonably well. But I had Yanis Varoufakis. Oh yeah, sometime the Greek. He was a he was my professor of economics. Yeah, microeconomics. But he went on to be the, finance minister the, in Greece, Greece. Yeah, when the whole thing blew up, and yeah. he had, you know the the government kind of screwed the people, and went, yeah, yeah, and he, you know, they had they had um, what is it called? Um, they defaulted on this. Yeah, what yeah, they were yeah, going yeah. To and they, yeah. So, Giannis was my lecturer. Yeah. Um, is he like the world's smartest man? Isn't that he's, what I He's a brilliant man. Um, and I stumbled into one of his lectures one day, because I wasn't really, I didn't really go to lectures, um, but I happened to go into one and he started talking about, um, what's it, Arrow's Impossibility Theorem, which I won't bore you the details. Thank with, you. But, um <laughs> I just remember being shocked, and then so I, I then opened the materials, which I hadn't looked at previously, because, mm. you know, I'd just do that for the exam. Yeah. But I started reading the materials, and I'm like, oh, shit. Actually, probably my understanding of the world, as well-read as I am, as, yeah. as, as smart as I see myself, is just wrong, or, is, you know, I've, I've, I've got these blinkers on that haven't been removed, and Yanis. Mm. I mean, he wouldn't know me. I'm not sure I ever spoke to him. But though I started going to his lectures and it was like, oh, this is actually mind-blowing and there's all this stuff I don't know. Mm. And so for a while there, I was a bit disillusioned. I was just like, well, I don't know what the hell I want to do with my life. Wow. It was that impactful. It was that impactful. It really was. Um, and I think for many years after that, I was just in a kind of... Many years, I mean, probably a decade. Really? Where I was in a fault, which was like, well... I can be a barrister, I'm pretty sure I can do that. So mm. I'll do that because it's a decent enough job. Yeah. But this is this is who, like, what this the hell is scratching I, some itch, right? Yeah, like what am I doing? I've got my passion back now. Um, but there was a while there that it was like what, what age? What age? Well, did this existential crisis happen? So that would have been like 
you know, start of uni, 1920, probably. Okay. And went on for a long time. Yeah. It wasn't really until I found myself out west defending Aboriginal people in like places like Kenya that I... And maybe, in a sense, I went out there kind of thinking, you know, rather than go the corporate law route, I went kind of, you know, the helpful route. What prompted that? How did you even hear about the ALS? So I finished university, um, and I, as I was, I was in a huge funk, um, and I started applying for jobs, and I got invited in for an interview with Legal Aid, thinking that they thought I was already admitted. I wasn't, so they let me hang out with them mm. um, until I was admitted. And then in the course of that, I just saw an ad in the newspaper, and I thought... It was for a job in Walgett. Mm. Uh, so I thought, well, that's pretty crazy. Let's try that. Yeah, on a whim. On a whim. Drove out to Dubbo, did the interview, and they're like, look, there's also a job in Broken Hill. Do you want that instead? And I'd been to Broken Hill before, so I chose Broken Hill. Sure. And out I went. And what year was that? 2005 or six, maybe? And are you just a single bloke? Single bloke. Just finished. You got it. Been just, nearly admitted. You, yeah, you ne- nearly admitted. You know, finished my degree. Went to Europe. Did a few months. You did all that. Did all that. Got came, that out of your system. Came back out there. Never been on my. I died, died one mention before I went out there, mm. and that was with leave in front of a registrar. Hmm. Um, and turn up, and they're like, "Here are your twenty sentences." Wow. For tomorrow. Straight into it. Here are the three hearings for two days after that, and here's the district court list of twenty appeals for the Monday after that and you're instructing in this trial and they got me drunk before oh, <laughs> my first list oh, my which God. was a great idea because I probably would have freaked out and, and, and had a heart attack well I was going to say without a hangover right, you know, okay, so, okay. Um, <clears throat> and talk about steep le- learning curves you know and I was punched in the face by somebody out there and broke my tooth a couple, really? of, a couple of weeks in and um, wow. And just, you know, you've got this... And, I, you know, I went to a private school. I was a kind of Sydney University cushy kind of bloke yeah. just thrown out into this world that I was unprepared for, but sink or swim, you know. And, and how, you do do you, do. how do you swim through that? I mean, how do you stick it out? Well, what else are you going to do? That's, <laughs> that's... You know, I said that I'm going to do this job. Um, if I fail at it, then I failed. So I'm not going to fail. And I did it. And, you know, there were nights where I'd go home and cry. And sure. Nights that I had no idea what I was doing. But I had, a, I had a good field officer out there who had dealt with many barristers and now and judges before me, sort of someone who'd, in effect, trained up the lawyers. So yeah. he was very helpful. Yeah. Um, and... You, you know, got no courtroom experience, no. no advocacy experience. No. You're just a super smart dude who knows stuff. And you have to get up and represent people yeah, straight away. and kind of no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and it was great. I, I remember the first hearing, I took this objection, and the magistrate um, took his glasses off and just shook his head at me. And, like, <laughs> kindly, like, not, not yeah, rudely. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. Mr. Grant Shane, that's just not how that works, <laughs> right? And I was just taken aback. Um, you know, so that was, it was a steep learning curve. And uh, one of the worst things is actually I feel really bad for Aboriginal people who get young lawyers like me out there who really have no idea what they're doing. Mm. And it seemed as a training ground for them. I was determined not to treat it in that way. Mm. But that's the reality. Mm. It's, you, know, you think that there should be some experienced hands going out there and giving these people all I they've think, got. Yeah. yeah, I think there could be a setup whereby... You get people experienced here yep. who then go out there if, if they want to be careerist about it, which mm-hmm. they shouldn't, but if they want to, it's not the first step in your career, it's the third step before you take the fourth, so that you've got the experience and you're capable of dealing with that. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. How long did you last out there? I did two years out there in, in Broken Hill, and then I moved to Dubbo, which I loved. I loved Broken Hill, best town in. Australia. That's a beautiful town. Um, Moved to Dubbo to be the senior solicitor there. Yep. Which I did for a year. 
Um, and at the time I was, it was that, that was the Western Aboriginal Legal Service, which no longer exists. Uh-huh. Um, that was coming to an end. The Commonwealth Government cut the funding, gave it to one outfit. And we were down about five solicitors. And so, including my boss, who was the manager. So I was effectively managing... I mean, I wasn't really managing. I was right. just the most senior, the senior lawyer mm-hmm. amongst too few lawyers, killing myself. Yeah. And they appointed somebody just as I was coming to the end. And I walked in. I ran this, you know, a crazy couple of months in front of the district court. And I sat down at the end and the judges, I hope they still do this, were like, you know, thank you for assistance during these sittings because they come out for sittings. And I went to stand up to acknowledge what had just been said to me. I couldn't stand up. Oh. And I had pneumonia. Oh, my gosh. Rushed me to the hospital. Had pneumonia. I thought I was having a heart attack. Turned out it was pneumonia. Yeah. And I walked back into the office the next day and said, I quit. You know, I yeah. can't do this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and trundled off to Brazil for three months to kind of, you know, recover myself. Yeah. yeah. And then came back and worked at the Attorney General's Department for a couple of years. Oh, in New South Wales? In New South Wales. for A couple criminal, of years? A couple of years for the Criminal Law Review Division, yep. which no longer exists, which is a damn shame. Um, and there I worked with Penny Musgrave, who's now Judge Musgrave of the District Court, and some brilliant people doing law reform. And what I learnt there was how to write, because as an ALS lawyer, it's all on your feet, it's all rushed, whereas this was... Drafting cabinet minutes, drafting briefs of evidence, dealing with the political side, dealing with judges and so on. So mm. it, was, it was a fabulous experience. Different world. Different world. Yeah, yeah, two different legal worlds. Yeah. When did the... I mean, I suppose the... the I don't want to answer for you. It feels like the answer was kind of like, you, you know, as soon as possible. When was the decision made to go to the bar? I mean, I was always going to go to the bar. You always. It was... Yeah, I mean, if... I, I never had aspirations to be the partner of a law firm or anything yep. like that. Um, in fact, I purposefully never got rid of the last impediments on the practicing certificate as a solicitor that allow you to practice by yourself. Because, because I no point. Didn't want to fall back. Okay. Right. Didn't want to have a fallback, and I didn't do what a lot of people do because I had a permanent job yep. with the government. I didn't hang on to that job and take a year off. I quit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm not coming back. Um, but I was always going to do it. So yeah. it was just, okay, now I'm back in Sydney. I know what I'm doing. I'm not half dead from running the ALS. So I'll go to the bar. Yep. Did you know any other barristers? Uh, not many. You know, the the few who came out to brief, I knew. So a couple of people at Forbes. Um, and I, I think a couple of people who had seen me from Forbes out there thought I was decent enough, which is how I got into this place, which is full of, full of brilliant minds, full of shows a pretty good floor. Yep. Um, so got in, didn't really have many sources of work, didn't really know what I was doing. Sure. Um, and but, but you've yeah. got advocacy experience, you've got courtroom experience, you've got writing experience. Yeah. So I'm set up. I can be a good lawyer. You can. But I don't know the clients. Yeah. Don't know the solicitors. Yeah, and and they don't tell you how the system works. No, they but, don't tell you how. The so system what you works. sit there? How does it work? Do you sit the exam in the designated period of time? Yeah, they tell you that you've passed. Yeah, there's I imagine some sort of ceremony that takes place shortly no. afterwards. Nothing. No, you got to go out and buy your robes. I guess it's buy your robes. Turn up. Your clerk tells you. Don't you have to read for someone for a you, year? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not completely helpless. Sure, you, sure, sure. You have to do a course. So you do this bar reading right, course. Right. Yeah. Um, which was in large part designed for people with no advocacy experience. Right. So half of it, half of it was quite useful and mm-hmm. half of it was useless to me. Sure. You know, I don't need, I knew how to tender a document. Okay. Um, but then you turn up and you've got, I had two tutors. One of them, Scott Corish from this floor, was, was very helpful. The other one, um, a guy called Anthony Spencer, who's at 3 St. James, who in my view is is one like the most barristerial kind of man I've ever met in the best traditions of that his readers have all done very well and we have a lunch every year wow. just such a nice guy and was so caring and I had no idea who he was I was introduced to him That's great through luck. someone and he so lucky yeah. he really kind of looked after me um, 
in my first few years in particular, and I still, you know, still to this day. Um, yeah, but, you know, work was hard to come by in my first few years. Um, but somebody told me the trick is to just do more work than you're paid for. And eventually people will realise. And I did a couple of matters, I think, sort of in my third or fourth year where I really did that and solicitors loved it. And touch wood, I've been, you know, full of work ever since. But how, how accurate is this cab rank rule that they speak of? I don't breach it. I mean, I, I am serious about it. If you can pay my fees and I'm available and it's within my competence, I do it. But that's your attitude now. Yeah. That's, what about Manuel Kirk sharing in first year in... First year in. I mean, it's, it's work, in the first year, you're desperate right. to take the work, or at least yeah. I was. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you do what you can. You mm. take whatever comes your way. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, one of the traps for young players is taking on matters that you're just not competent yeah. to deal with. I mean, the, the matters that I run now, I run matters with juniors, or pretty like those things, I would not have had a clue how to run. And I might have thought that I did, mm. but I didn't. Yeah. And it's only now that you, you know, 10, 11 years in that you start to realise just how how much there is to learn at the bottom. Yeah. And how much that goes on, you know. So interesting. Um, I wanted to ask, um, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead of myself, but I, I guess one of the questions I was going to ask, and it's probably out of order, but is there anyone that you would think the bar is not suited for? I mean, lots of people. Mm-hmm. I think because your your routine frightens me. <laughs> what about my routine? I've heard stories of, of, and this is probably just on par with the course. But you would wake up at four a.m. It's not unusual for you to do such things no. in order to uh, adequately read what needs to be read for the day ahead, and that's not even getting a head start. Well, that's my choice, right? I, there are a lot of barristers who I think work quite late at night. I prefer the mornings. So I would much rather wake up if I'm busy. I mean, I wake up as it is at 4 or 5 a.m. anyway. Why is that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I've always been an early riser, except at university. <laughs> but I think that's everyone. That's fair um, enough. So I, I wake up early, and I find that between 3 or 4 a.m. and 7 a.m., I can do double the amount of work that I would do between 6 p.m., and 9pm mm. and so I choose to do it that way mm. I know there are a lot of barristers who don't do but it you that know way. your body well enough to be like yeah. this is my sweet spot and it's uninterrupted there's no emails coming through there's nobody knocking on your yeah. door you just smash phone it phone doesn't out. ring phone doesn't ring so wife's asleep yeah um, and so it's just the way I do it it's not horses for courses but sure. I mean, trials are hard particularly the kind of big trials that I run you're working till 10pm and then waking up at 3am wow for you know sometimes a couple of months yeah um you're throwing everything into it well you have to I mean I you know you're defending someone I'm normally defending sometimes I'm prosecuting but when I'm defending I'm, I'm trying to help someone with their life and the consequences particularly in those matters is decades of jail time how could I sleep if I don't try my best for them, you know, like that's. I think I think if you're in this job for the money, then you're in it for the wrong reason. So there are people who it's unsuitable for, people who think that this is a career that they're going to make money out of, can be, and you can make the money. But if that drives you, I don't think you should be at the bar. Um, that's not to say you shouldn't get paid. You should get paid exceptionally well because the work we do is exceptionally difficult. But you know, I. I think that the bar's got room for all kinds of people. I think that's one of its strengths, is that you can have someone mischievous like me, you can have someone super nerdy and hyper kind of, you know, focused, you can have people who are excellent writers, you can have people who are excellent orators, Um, you can have people from all kinds of backgrounds, you know. Um, One of my big bugbears is that, you know, we need more people from diverse ethnic backgrounds at the bar. Um, because I think the bar will improve as a result of that. I think its advocacy will improve as a result of that. So I think it's open to everyone, um, you know, and my only thing is 
I have a problem with people who are careerists. I don't. That's just a taste thing for. I don't like people who are just doing this to either make a name for themselves or for the money. I mean, those are things that should come along. This is a vocation. It's not. You know, it's almost like you treat the bar with like the sort of reverence that someone who goes into the priesthood or the convent would have. You know, yeah. it's the, the vocation element that you mentioned. It's it's a sacred space, yeah, and it requires your all. Well, I think it does. I mean, we are the independent bar is just this incredible accident of history that we exist. That there's some guy like me who's kind of like. You know, is, is an advocate for the punters, an advocate against... Or an advocate for parties, even, it's, if we include the corporate world, an advocate for whoever, mm. but also has this kind of higher duty to the court, or not higher, but, you know, similar duty to the court, mm. sits in the middle, helps the state in kind of managing its most difficult disputes and does it as a private citizen. Mm. Like, what an incredible thing for that to happen. And... I spent some time, I was in London in, in January, and I spent some time visiting the inns of court mm. and seeing the history and talking to some barristers over there. Mm. And there's a better sense of it over there than I think there is here. Right. It's le- it's less of a job and more of a kind of yeah, like yeah, vocation. Yeah. But I, I'm serious about that. And, and judges are the same. I mean, judges, sure, get paid by the government, but hopefully there are people who've spent their careers helping the state understand helping other judges understand and are now they're called upon to do their judgment to exercise their judgment and what you know i read this judgment i won't name it because i probably shouldn't but i read this judgment by a supreme court justice in who in the last week delivered this murder sentence i'm reading through it i'm going what an incredibly hard thing for a judge to do to decide how long of a person's life who's committed murder is going to be spent in prison and this justice just wrote this judgment that was just bang on, like just full of clear compassion, compassion for the victim, compassion for everybody. Mm. Well-reasoned, well-thought-out and, and well-presented. And what an incredible thing for someone to do. Mm. And that, what a gift that is to our society that we engage in that process. Yeah. We, engage in it for, we engage in it when two corporations have any argument about money. We're going to have some pretty smart people think about what's right. Yeah. And that's not worth trampling on and it's not worth treading like a job. I love that. That's what I love about you, Manny. And I really think it's really interesting that um, the history of, you know, um, being Armenian and being exposed to ruthless dictatorship and just embracing the reasonableness of this uh, English common law system that we've inherited. Yeah. It is quite reasonable. As, yeah. as, as, as harsh as the history of it has been and its introduction into this country especially, yeah. the result that we have a couple of hundred years later is a justice system that, uh, sh- like, whether or not it gets it right, it at least is reasonable in its approach and provides a sense of procedural fairness. Yeah. And and kind of... You know, it's interesting... That like, we, you don't go in with a deck stacked against you. Yeah. And we, we, that's right. Well, or if you do, at least you've got some people who are going to fight on your behalf, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that, you know, we, we talk about reasonableness a lot as lawyers. There's this, you know, the, the man on the Clapham omnibus. Yeah. Um... But it's funny that there are aspects of the law that aren't reasonable. Like, juries really aren't reasonable. If you think them through, you can provide reasons for them, but uh-huh. they're really an accident of history that we have juries. Mm. Um, even the reasonable person is not really... It, it's kind of our cheat way to seem reasonable about something that's the vibe of it. You know? Yeah. And I think one of the beauties of the common law is that it really deals with those aspects of life that aren't reasonable, that aren't logical, that require some higher principled basis to make the decision. Mm. And it's stark in the criminal law where, you know, beyond reasonable doubt and things like that. But even in even in the corporate space with equity and things like that, it's like, hang on, there are some ideas about how the world should be managed. Isn't it funny? 
you know? Yeah. How beautiful is that? Yeah, I agree. It's, it's so beautiful. It's, it's so, so interesting. You know, and it's not that kind of cold rationalism of the legislature. You know, right. the legislature often says, oh, well, we'll just set out a sense of rule, set of rules that apply to this, and these yeah. days we'll have 15 pages of definitions or if it's Commonwealth, what we'll do is define things, you know. It's like, well, that's nice, mm. but actually we're dealing with people here. Yeah. And if we're talking about the corporation and a billion dollars, billion dollars is the livelihoods of how many people? Sure. You know, how many houses in Sydney is a billion dollars? Probably not that many these mm-hmm. days. But, yeah. you know. Do you ever, you ever had any experience in the civil system? And is that how that operates? The civil, as in like... Like those jurisdictions where it is, I guess, the legislature and nothing else. Well, I mean, they still have advocates and they still have individuals who are making the decisions, but... I don't think, and I haven't had enough experience to know for sure, yeah. I just don't think you get the same thing that you get here with the independent bar yeah. in our kind of really odd role. Yeah. And it's it's been a funny experience for me because I was sort of firebrand when I started coming from the ALS roots. And yep. as you get older at the bar, you, you kind of really start to focus on, I don't want to waste the court's time. Yeah. I don't want to... You know, my job is to kind of make sure that these arguments are the serious arguments, not the rubbish ones. Yeah. Um, not for nothing, but I owe it to the system. Yeah. It's, it's part of my role to make sure that that works. And yeah, yeah. Your technique is refining. Yeah, but it's not just it's not just me becoming a better advocate, which hopefully I am. Yeah. It's, it's more about understanding that the role of the barrister is actually something other than just pushing their clients' mm. position. Mm. Um, there's a sort of societal role to what we do. Mm. And I think that it's something that's not appreciated by society at large that just thinks we're guns for hire. It's like, well, we're not just guns for hire. We're actually an integral part of the government of this country and this state. And we're an unusual part in that we're not paid by the state. Yeah. When you became a barrister, and you mentioned at the start of this interview that your father wanted to become a barrister, yeah, what was that moment like for him? I I remember him tearing up at my yeah. admission when I became a solicitor. Yeah, um, he was quite pleased by that. And then <laughs> he came after I finished the bar course to see me in my robes, and he was. I mean, he was proud of me. You yeah, know? he was. I think happy that I happy that I'd come through some of the kind of lo- listlessness of my life. Sure. Um, and I'd done something pretty great that you know he always wanted to do. And the magnanimity, the the, the the enormousness, the enormity of his success, particularly having come from where he came from, is not something that I think I, I would ever be able to match. But I, you know, I think. He was very proud. Definitely set a high bar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's nothing I could do that would ever come to that. I didn't come from... I had all the privilege in the world growing up, you know. Didn't come from where he came from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you... I mean, do you think it's... I mean, uh, it's a, what, 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 a, what kind of a loss is it to the English system that Stepan Kirkusharian, KC, never graced the... Yeah, it's... I mean, I've never actually thought about that in that way, but gosh. I mean, in a sense, we got lucky because we got him managing community relations in this state. And he had some tough times, you know, Cronulla riots. Yeah. um, Heaps of examples. You know, we we sent death threats at home. Really? Yeah, yeah. It was... There were some tough times. Jeez. Um, And we got very lucky. I think, as a state, to have him in that job. Yeah. He would have been an incredible advocate. He would have been an incredible judge. Yep. Um, and he would have brought in, I think, some of the cultural wisdom that he had. Yeah. Um, as well as sort of, you know, the classical things that, that common lawyers or lawyers bring in, you know. Um, and it's why, again, I, I'm always sort of anxious to promote ethnic diversity at the bar and on the bench you know I think it's so important to have those different viewpoints come in um, and it's hard like I I won't say who it was but I had this absolutely brilliant young barrister from a diverse background contact me recently and uh, this guy's 
a billion times smarter than me, a billion times more qualified than me, and he's getting treated like shit. Mm. And it's like, well, why are they doing that? And he's p- perfectly personable, hard work. You know, I checked all of this. I didn't, you know, go in. And it's because of his race. And it's still happening. And so part of the problem, I think, is that we don't have enough diverse judges and so you don't have the networks around those judges that kind of introduce and bring that. That's starting to change. Mm. Um, not quick enough. But, yeah, I just really think there would be a benefit in, in kind of that being pushed by the powers that be. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. What are the makeup? I mean, from your experience, um, you've experienced some uh, racial prejudice in matters. Sure. Is it... How prevalent is it? I don't know. I, I don't I mean, when I started, I think it was worse. I once had a magistrate make fun of me. And when I was a young, brash solicitor, I said to him... He said, oh, I see your name's been spelled out for me here, Mr. Kirchherr. And he says, but just out of amusement, how many Ks are there in your name? Mm. And I said to him, look... There are any number of letters in my name, but if it's too hard, just write W-O-G on the court papers. Mm, mm. And he went silent. Mm. But then from that day on, he was impeccably polite to me. Like He learnt his lesson. I think mm. there's a lot of racism that is just born of ignorance and not in a malicious sense ignorance, just like people don't know. Yep. I think that, and I hear this from other people and it's been my experience, you come up against the white guy, you know, the, the classic... Anglo-Saxon name and guy and that person, and it's invariably a guy, gets more credence from the bench than you do, right? Until they know who you are. And so often, I mean, it's less now because I'm more experienced. The the judges know you a bit better. They know to take you seriously or not take you seriously as they like. But, um, you know, I think it's still there. And I I think in Australian society, it's covertly done. I think the racism is not as open as it is elsewhere and I think that's worse. Yeah. Right? I'd much rather have it to my face. You know, I had I've had senior silks refer to me to other colleagues in disparaging terms on on a racial basis. I yeah. know that. Yeah. Um I've I know of stories of two silks in the well of the high court making fun of the race of a, one of their instructor one of their one of their junior counsel. Right. Right? I mean, the, these things go on now, even still. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the answer is complaining, although if people were minded to do that, I wouldn't stand in their way. Sure. I just think we need to start... Clean house. Yeah, well, we just need to start pushing up people. Sure. Yeah. How um, is the bar... Um, is it perceived as an elite area where those... I mean, like... Does it have a sort of private schoolboy sense around it, or are you finding it changing to be a little bit more? I mean, I, I remember. Oh, I has... I'm a private schoolboy, but anyway, go on. I, yeah, I, I didn't <laughs> yeah. want to. I didn't want to touch <laughs> on that right. too much. Yeah. Um, but do you understand what I mean when I say just some of the impression I'm getting from you in terms of the Anglo-Saxon nature of it? The Exclusivity of being a barrister. Do yeah. some people come from a background where they ha- they come from a, a, an exclusive uh, e- element of society, and they bring that exclusivity with them to the bar, and their friends have that exclusivity, and it's pervasive in the area. Is that a major issue? I don't think it's fair to say that of the bar anymore. I think it was probably true. But I think the Bar Association has been doing good work in, in rectifying that. Um, I have on my wall uh, an image of a page from, the, uh, from an old Bar News magazine. And mm. it was the... Uh, they had six pages on diversity at the bar. And they had photos of this diversity thing that they had. And if you have a look at the photo, every single person in that photo is white. Yeah, I see it. You see that? There it is, yeah. So, and I, I, I remember ripping that out and just 
like laughing because they had this diversity thing and they couldn't find somebody who wasn't white to be yeah. present. Yeah. Now, since that time, the Bar Association has done a lot. And yeah. They, they need to be credited for it. Yep. Um, they did a whole issue on diversity that included ethnic diversity, and that's great. Yeah. But there's a long way to go. So, and I mean, something controversial, like, I think there's some utility in exclusivity. But the question is, what's the nature of that exclusivity? Like, what? I mean, judges by their nature have to be divorced from society, they have to be exclusive, right? Barristers, in the same way, kind of do. And it seems to me that what the bar should be is an intellectual elite, united in sort of the underlying common law principles and equity principles that guide us. So that kind of knowledge guiding us and an intellectual standard that guides us and not one based on background. And I think that will happen over time. Yeah. Yeah. When I had a conversation with you many years ago and... I think I was just starting out in the law and you go yeah it's a trade yeah and I love that you said that about it because it is you go to work with your set of tools and you apply them to the job yeah that they are required to be applied to yeah um do you still have that belief yeah I mean it, uh, having just said it's a vocation I mean, <laughs> I, but it is a tra- the, re- I, the, the context in which I describe it as a trade is in the context of legal education, which is to say you it's a trade in the sense that you need to pick up the skills to do it. It's not an intellectual learning exercise. You can't learn how to be a lawyer from books, you know. Um, and, you know, once upon a time you had your articles, you did that. You still have the practical legal PLT, component yeah. and mm, so on. Mm. To my mind, with great respect to my lecturers at Sydney University... Almost all of my degree was a waste of time. Um, and it would have been better off doing a couple of years or a year of introductory stuff and then going off and practising and learning on the job. And it's a trade in the sense of the old-fashioned meaning of that word where you used to have masters. You know, you'd have the apprentice yep. and then you'd have the person who was the practitioner yep. and then you'd have the master who was the super-skilled person in that field who was, you know... And you can kind of... I, I, I fear that that aspect of it is going away, the idea of mastery, the idea of being the super-skilled advocate, the people... You still have senior counsel and so on, but, you know, super-competent, hyper-competent, and passing those skills on to your apprentices and to the people below you as you go through. Yeah. And one of the hardest things in crime, um, but I think this is across the board now that they've abolished... Because once upon a time, silts had to have juniors. Right. And they don't have to anymore. It's a big problem because juniors don't get to learn how to be the master. Yeah, sure. Unless they're sitting at the feet. Mm. And so now a lot of people are denied that opportunity. And there's almost like a professional class of junior that's being built up that's really good at the skills of being a junior, Mm. but not the other skills of being a barrister. And you've got kind of this disparate particularly yeah. in crime developing, where you've got advocates and professional juniors. And I worry about that for wow. the future of the career, oh, for the profession. Just wanted to end on um, something that you were talking about before. You were talking about the responsibility that comes with somebody's freedom and their sole defence resting on your shoulders. And, you know, it would lead to a 4am wake-up call where you would... Yeah. you know uh, devote yourself to understanding what it is you need to do for that particular day in order to save this person you do that a lot yeah that's your vocation it, it just what does it do to you as a person you probably can't answer that yet but does it have a long shelf life doesn't that weigh you down after a while or is this do you fight until the fight has left you what's it's soul destroying at times you know I just took two and a half months off to just kind of ground myself again um, and usually after a big trial I will get on an aeroplane and go overseas to just chill out some of the things that I'm called upon to do are quite horrible objectively you know you question witnesses in ways that you don't want to um, 
things that, you know, and always as nicely and as respectfully as you can, but sometimes it's a tough job. And we deal with it in the ways we can. You know, I, I always, after, I've, after a big or a heavy matter, I always go and talk to a shrink because you've just got to clear your mind, you know. Um, even if I don't feel bad, I go just in case. I might, there might be something under there. Um, but weighs down on you. You know, you, you, you're cross-examining some, somebody you don't want to cross-examine. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And you come home to your family and all of a sudden you're having an argument and you don't know why yeah. and it's because you've had a day yeah you know and you, you try and keep that in check and be as kind as you can but it's a tough job yeah there was a there was a, a podcast recently um, and Stephen knew him you probably knew him as well he was the ex-magistrate of Dubbo I think and he was uh, he was on um, the conversation hour yeah. talking about his experience as the magistrate and he had post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. I believe yeah. because the nature of the work eventually yeah. seeped into his psyche and his soul and yeah. and do you think do you think I mean, I, I don't. You don't strike me as someone who's going to think that far ahead. You're, you're, you've, you've got the passion and the vocation. Do you think you'll do this forever? I don't know. Um, I really don't know. I don't know what else I could do. I never really thought about being a judge, um, and in a sense, that's the progression from being a barrister as being a judge. And, there are some good things about being a judge, like the opportunity to actually craft something wonderful and state the law, although that's probably not that often. But you can do that job well and seriously and have a good impact on society. Mm. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I do know that there's only a certain number of trials I can do. Um, I don't know how many that is, but you can't do them, particularly the sorts of trials I do. You can't do a lot of them. Okay. Um, and... I have been bending a little bit more corporate in the sort of work that I do. I kind of... I I see now the sort of virtue in doing that in a way that I did it before. And by virtue, I mean sort of societal virtue. Yeah. Like actually, you know, helping a corporation stay afloat... Is important. Is important. I mean, they're, they're ultimately, there are punters who are working for that corporation who yeah. lives, need to be sorted out. Exactly. And, or people who need fairness in the... You know, so... Yeah. I don't know is the short answer, um, but there's few jobs in the world that test you in the way that this job does. Amazing. You know, I, yeah. I had, I, I kind of, you know, I had the, the Black Lives Matter case experience in front of the Supreme Court in the evening, live stream, thumping the table, having this big row about rights. Yep. And that's the dream, you know, when you're back at law school. That's what you want to... Every, every lawyer, I, think, I imagine every lawyer has some sort of dream like that. Yeah. I've done it now. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get two of those, I don't think. Box. So, so you know, who knows? Who knows what do you reckon the podcast gives you that you wouldn't have had if we didn't exist? Um, it's been fascinating, I think, to get into sort of... What's the, what's the word that the that the um, professors use. Judas prudence. You get this kind of Judas prudence kind of angle. You get the policy angle, which I've always been interested in. Um, and I really like that, you know, I think there are a few things, and I don't want to say which ones they are, but we've had an effect on law reform, which has been fabulous. Um, and we've done some things in the background as well that wouldn't have been possible, including during the COVID times, that have been really helpful to everyone. And I think that's... That's a pretty good thing. Also, I get to hang out with you and yeah. Stephen and Flick and, you know, there's that camaraderie. Yeah, definitely. Which, at the bar, I mean, you know, I've got lots of friends at the bar, sure. but it's there's a loneliness. And being able to discuss the finer points of the issues and disagree about them is, is pretty fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, well, Emmanuel Kogasharian, I, uh, I, I, I don't think I've known anyone more aware of their societal contribution than you. That's oh, a horrible thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. And I meant it as a compliment. <laughs> wow. So when I'm playing this, if I came off like that, gosh. No, no, no. I no, But I've always got that, even before we had this conversation. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, I always knew you as someone acutely aware 
of their role and the responsibilities that come with it. And th- and, and and that's what I mean as a compliment because uh, I find it really inspiring. So um, God help us. <laughs> no, I, I, look. That's the thing. You don't, you don't like any smoke blowing being blown up your ass, and I respect that. But Emmanuel Kukasherian, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks, I've Jim. always wanted to chew your brain. I'm so lucky that I just had an hour to do it. Um, thank you very much for the podcast, for your time today, for your advocacy, for the brilliant work that you do, for being you. I am the biggest fan. Thank you, Emmanuel Kukasherian. Thank Bless you, Jim. Thank Bless you so you. much. Thank you. Thanks.